0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Self-Initiative Project Podcast. I'm your host, Jim O'Brien. Welcome to episode 16. Today we have my guest, Rob Pincus, on the line with us. How are you, Rob?
1: I'm doing great, Jim. I really appreciate you having me on the... The podcast—we're doing some some great things to open up some people's minds. I think on some really important topics, and I'm um, looking forward to participating.
0: I appreciate that, and I appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule. i uh, as I've learned here as of late to do this with us. Uh, so, um, before we get started, I, I want to—we're we're, going to be talking about um, your your company and the principles it was found found on: ICE training, integrity, consistency, and efficiency, as well as the uh, mental illness and how that's come into play and how that has been at play in the firearms community and firearm safety and suicide and whatnot, gun negligence. But before we get started, we always like to give our guests the opportunity to tell us about themselves, their background, their history, what they do, what they're about. And you know, in the gun community, I'm sure you've got to be living under a rock not to know who you are. But for our audience, let's pretend like they don't know who Rob is and um, give, them, give them a spiel.
1: Yeah, I, I guess, like you said, if you're in the gun world, you, you probably have heard my name or seen my face somewhere. I've been uh, working inside the gun industry, you know, formally for over 20 years. 1997 is the, the year I, I used for that. But wow. informally, I was around uh, the, the industry and the firearms community in different ways, uh, you know, going back for a while and including Military service for a brief time, working in law enforcement, working in executive protection, and uh, being around the security industry. But really, while I was writing for magazines and doing a lot of different promotional marketing things inside of the gun community, uh, it wasn't until 2001 that I made the shift. Uh, to enter full time into education and and specifically personal defense education. and really the focus for a long time was on defensive shooting skills. So I left law enforcement in two thousand and one uh, to do that. Uh, and I still hold a reserve deputy uh, badge and and serve uh, the county uh, small county out here in Colorado as a training officer and occasionally help out with patrol duties and things like that. Sure. But really, the shift was made in two thousand and one. To focus on education and focus on being part of the training community and the educational community, and uh, that it took till about 2003 until training was paying all the bills, so to speak. Uh, but uh, ever since then, it's it's been you know really exactly what what I could have hoped for, and, and probably far more than I would ever have expected in terms of the opportunities to teach around the world, uh, teach some of the most uh, capable military operators on the planet uh, in our U.S. Uh, military both in the Navy side and the the army side and the air force side, the high end law enforcement guys all over the world, uh, you know, worked for uh, a lot of, you uh, amazing agencies and entities and organizations, as well as, uh, you know, going all the way to the other end of the spectrum, having been able to influence a whole lot of people who, who you know, haven't even bought their first gun or haven't even thought about, you know, the importance of having a strong lock on their door or something like that, or the way they live their life in terms of safety and security. Um, and, and I've just had a, a wonderful experience now for uh, approaching 20 years uh, doing this full time as an educator. And along the way, I've gotten involved with you know, producing television shows and being part of a lot of different television projects, and writing books, and producing DVDs, and you know, all the streaming and distance education work that I do uh, through Personal Defense Network and the USCCA and lots of other places, and uh, dealing with things like like uh, being on podcasts and and being able to educate people just conceptually through some of the ideas that that are really important and foundational to personal defense and, and self-awareness and, and just kind of living a good life uh, that is safer and, and more secure because you're more capable and more prepared. All of those things are really important to me. So it's uh, that's kind of how I end up on the show today, I guess, is is getting to do what I want to do and helping other people be better prepared to do the things they might need to do.
0: Yeah. And, and that's, that's great. I think one of the things that, uh, of course, I've been following you for a while now myself. And I think when we first connected, I think one of the things that uh, wanted me to reach out as I noticed when you put out your rights and responsibilities, uh, shirt that I was like, ah, we've got a similarity here with this whole belief in responsibilities. And so that was my connection, uh, to, to wanting to, uh, connect with you initially. And, uh, speaking of principles, your, your, your company, I see is actually an acronym integrity, consistency, and efficiency. And so tell me how that came about and what that means for you and what, what messages you have behind that.
1: Yeah, I guess, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, that rights and responsibilities message that, uh, you, you mentioned as far as the t-shirt really is yeah. a, a, an outgrowth, I guess, or an application of the ICE principles, integrity, consistency, and efficiency, you know, specifically to our second amendment rights. And the idea that, that we, if we want to exercise those rights, um, we need to do so responsibly and, that's an important message inside of the gun community on a, on a bigger scale, like, you know, whatever you want to throw at it, you know, the 150,000 foot kind of view. What we do at ICE Training Company, what I've tried to do is specifically like in all aspects of my life is, is really we, we take those three principles, integrity, consistency and efficiency, and we, we reverse them to come to the best conclusion for ourselves and for our students if, if it's in a specifically educational role. So so we start with efficiency and efficiency is a modification on effectiveness. And it's a modification that means you're achieving your goal. The idea of effectiveness, that you've come up with something that solves a problem, but you're specifically achieving that goal with as little time, effort or energy as possible. And and while in our everyday lives, that's obviously, you know, kind of self-evidently valuable in an emergency situation in a, in an acute medical situation in a in a self defense situation that ur- that urgency and the the efficiency aspect of achieving your goal becomes that much more important right you, you don't have seconds to waste you don't have extra energy or extra uh, motor skill you know, focus to waste. Uh, you don't have extra awareness to waste on uh, extraneous details. So if we can be prepared to not just solve a problem, but in fact, to solve a problem as efficiently as possible, with as little time effort energy investment as possible, we're significantly more prepared, especially in, in an emergency life-threatening kind of situation.
0: Yeah. Under stress, it becomes even more important to be effective and efficient um, because, you know, and, and that's a good selling point for doing the training in the first place, because without the training, there's no way you can ever get to that point, especially under duress.
1: Yeah. We, you know, we, we look at when we, we look at a lot of the technical things that the physical skills that we teach in the defensive shooting and other aspects of the training. And quite often what we have actually done isn't, you know, sat in a room or on a range or in a, in a mat room where we're doing unarmed training and tried to figure out the best way possible, you know, under those circumstances. And that's, that's one of the big problems, honestly, in the training community and the defensive community is people turn it into a game or they turn it into a sport. So they look at it like they would look at, um, you know, pitching a a baseball or, or, you know, shooting a a basketball into a, a hoop. And when they do that, what they, what they do is they end up isolating the mechanics or the athleticism of the task. As opposed to focusing on the application of the technique they're trying to develop or the skill they're trying to develop in the more realistic context, a lot of times, um, you know, uh, thankfully we don't need our guns, right? In personal defense, and most U.S. law enforcement, we don't need our guns every day. So people get really comfortable training for the range or training for the the test, if you will. Sure. Uh, So one of the big problems we end up with is this idea that we've got a optima optimization fetish almost. It's like, how do I become as good as I can at this thing? Because that makes me feel more accomplished. Well, the problem is when we optimize ourselves for that environment, which isn't actually the environment we need the skill in, or we no. presume yep. we may someday need the skill in, we're fooling ourselves. And I talk a lot about like driving right, because we all have to drive, right? Yep. We all, you know, I get it, like there's a couple of people in Manhattan maybe listening to the podcast <laughs> that you don't have to drive, but for the rest right. of us humorous for a second, we all, we all have to drive. So we, 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 and the way we drive is applied. We don't drive like we're driving on a racetrack, right? Now right. I spend a lot of time on tracks. I've done a lot of racing. I, I enjoy it as a, as a hobby uh, as well, and high performance cars and like that. So yeah. I, I've spent enough time in that environment while I'm certainly not an expert in that field, I understand that there is a vast difference between the way one drives on a track to get the best lap time, and even the car you drive. Or the way you set your car up is so dramatically different than a daily driver kind of thing. I mean, all you, it, it go look at Formula One, right? And you look at like, those cars; they have like almost no relevance to anyone's daily driving experience. The way they're driven, the way they're built, the the technology inside of them, all those kinds of things, and that's the ultimate version of of racing, right? So, yep. If we look at that and we say, you know, for road racing for cars, if we look at that and we say, how are those guys optimizing their lap times? How is Mercedes winning, you know, nine out of 10 races? Well, they're doing it by taking every possible advantage and controlling all the variables they can in a very predictable environment. Well, if I were to approach shooting in the same way, I might get really, really good at shooting or I'd be really, really effective at, uh, uh controlling all the variables, isolating all the metrics and, you know, getting exactly the right gun that was best to pass the test or to get the highest score on the test or in the game that I was playing. And that's what you do with a with a car like with NASCAR, they build the cars very differently than they do with Formula One because they're trying to do something different in a different way with different limitations in terms of uh, budget and and things like that. So yep. the, every different racing setup is going to be a little different, even different tracks. You're going to set your car up differently, taking different corners. You're going to do it in different ways. But because you have memorized the track and because, you know, you know, six months ahead of time, which track you're going to be on, yep. you can set yourself up for that. So that if you take that approach to defensive training, you end up with a very choreographed kind of stylized exec- execution of mechanical techniques that may or may not apply to the actual road you find yourself driving down. We yeah. can go back to the driving analogy.
0: You've kind of and point- painted means- yourself in a box.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you become, and you become overconfident, right? You become really, really good at that one thing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the guy who, who buys the Corvette and you can go to the internet and look at like supercar fails or Corvette fails videos like all day long. It's the guy who buys the Corvette. He knows it'll go zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. He's sitting at a red light next to a, you know, a, a, a Dodge charger or a, ford mustang everyone involved in this scenario knows the corvette is faster than the ford but this guy floors it and he doesn't realize the road's a little wet and the back end kicks out from under him and he spins and bounces off the mustang and goes over the curb and hits a telephone pole, which then proceeds to fall down and start a fire across the street and it's like your car was faster bro we know but you had no ability to apply Right, that the fact that you had a powerful car that you theoretically could hold the steering wheel straight while you accelerated, in the context of the the moment you found yourself in, and when we watch people defending themselves with guns or trying to defend themselves with guns on video, when we see dash camera videos or police officer shootings, we very rarely see the perfect execution of the uh, qualification course type shooting that they've been practicing and that they were trained to do or they learned to do, yeah. and we see improvisation. And that improvisation is often pretty efficient. So when we we go back to the late 1990s, when we started seeing more and more of these dash camera videos, more and more videos of people actually in real fights, we started seeing higher high level reality based training with simulation, simulation rounds and force on force training with protective gear in in deeply uh, immersive scenarios. And we would see people responding and even reacting in ways that were very, very, very different than what they were supposedly trained to do. And it's those improvisations that we ended up like reverse engineering to try to help people be as prepared as possible for the moment uh, because they have a baseline set of principled skills where they may not be the fastest shooter they could be on the range, but they absolutely have a realistic idea of what they're capable of in the real world. And that's so much more important. And That's a big, big takeaway from this efficiency concept is not just fast but fast in application in the intended context. So it's a really foundational principle for, for a whole bunch of reasons. But I think people hopefully can see how that is, is so vital that you're learning how to solve the problem, not with, you know, the the best toolkit in the world. But when your car breaks down on a mountainside and you have like a, a Leatherman and some duct tape, right. can you get the job done as opposed to being in the BMW dealership, you know, with every tool in the world and it's, it's sparkling clean
0: you know you you touch on a point indirectly and i was as i was listening i was also uh googling this quote that i've um come across a few times doing krav maga and other things but it's a, and i guess it's attributed to some uh greek poet now they've determined but anyway it says we don't rise to the level of our expectations we fall to the level of our training so you know you've got to train to get just good enough to be able to get through it. And then hopefully, you know, you're still not going to do things that you did during your training, but hopefully you've had enough training where you can improvise and figure it out and get through the situation that you may find yourself in.
1: Exactly. And and I I actually had breakfast this morning with a guy who was a formal, former, uh, special operations guy and he's running a private security company for uh, high end executive protection clients. Uh, and he's getting ready to take on some international clients and he knows that like his, some of his guys are going to be a little bit like not sure about traveling internationally with the responsibility of protecting someone without a gun. And we're not talking about guys going, you know, into Afghanistan. We're talking about guys that are going to want to, you know, their wives want to go shopping in London, you know, and yeah. so they or they want to try out a new restaurant in Hong Kong. Right. And it's like. If you can't get people in those environments to understand that you got to solve the problems in the ways that are available to you, not pretend that you're always going to have your preferred solution or you're going to have that problem you predicted. Because yep. honestly, at, at some point, the problem you predicted isn't a problem anymore. Right. Like you wake up in the morning and you're hungry. And you, it's not a problem. because <laughs> you, know you know what how to do. To do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, you know, you open a fridge and there's no food. Then you have no money. Now you have a problem. Now
0: there's and, a problem. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great that that's the the idea behind that part of your training program. And I was just having this conversation with a buddy of mine the other day, and we were talking about the exact same thing. You know, fundamentally across, you know, in the self-defense world even, they do a fairly good job, not everywhere, but they do a fairly good job of putting people in scenarios to work through and think about. But they, they don't, and there's not a super good way um, or we were discussing the fact that there's, it's not always possible to make someone experience duress the way they would if it was on the street, right? Even in, even going blindly into a scenario room where you don't know exactly what's going to happen to you and how you're going to need to respond, you still know you're about to walk in through the doorway, exactly. right? And,
1: and people underestimate how much of an advantage that really is.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's almost 50% of the mental battle up front. Hey, I know I'm about to go in and get my ass beat if nothing else. Right. So you just kind of prepare for that. So it's important to try to find training scenarios that do are more realistic and at least get you to start thinking about areas that you might need to be improving upon so that when the time comes, you can at least think your way through it if nothing else.
1: Yeah. And that's just it is you really and, and even better than think we go back to effective versus efficient is recognized. So if you create yeah. enough uh, pattern recognition for a, a certain class of problems, you're going to you know, jump past that kind of old old model people say the hicks law the hicks hyman law where you well the more options you have the the shorter your or the longer your reaction time yeah that's true in a a technical way but the human brain has a really strong capability of just getting rid of all the extraneous solutions and coming down to hopefully just one recognized solution or uh, just a very uh, two very closely related choices and that quite often can be or sorry two two very um applicable choices, usually that aren't closely related. So in other words, you've got the opportunity to fight or flee, right? And if you go fight, well, then the fight option is what it is. If you go flee, the flee option is what it is. And that makes that decision-making process much, much easier for the prepared and, and trained person.
0: Yep. Absolutely. So consistency.
1: Consistency is Maybe the easiest one to 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 define and to talk about because it is kind of self evident in most ways, so consistency takes two forms: the most obvious one I think is that we need to make sure that whatever it is we're doing is consistent with the other things we do so in other words, if if I say okay, I'm going to solve this problem uh by gripping my you know when it, whenever I do the x, y or z, I grip my gun a certain way and the way I grip my gun to solve problems X, Y, and Z works 99% of the time. Then, then that's good because I have a consistent grip throughout almost all the plausible things I'm going to need to do with that handgun. On the other hand, if I have a situation where I say, "Okay, I'm going to grip my gun like this because it it gets .02% better when I'm shooting at long distance." But then if I'm going to shoot really fast at close distances, I'm going to hold my gun in a different way because it's also 0.02% better in terms of speed, whereas the other one was 0.02% better in terms of uh, uh, pre- precision. And then, but oh, but if I have to reload, I can't reload really efficiently in this grip. So I'm going to ch- shift my grip a little bit as I'm, you know, de- depleting my ammunition. I'm going to shift my grip so I'm preparing to reload. You know, that's just crazy. And and hopefully it sounded crazy right? like yeah. when I said it. Just the idea that you're not really going to be drawing your gun and putting your hand in a different place on it in a defensive situation based on whether the target is 10 feet away or 100 feet away, right? Right. So if if we can have one grip, that again, let's go back to efficiency. So does this grip that I'm pretending that is going to be perfect for me really solve the vast majority or all the plausible problems I'm going to need to solve in terms of my hand connecting to the gun? And then... Is it consistent with, as much as possible, all the other things I might have to do? So I know what I'm probably going to have to do is just pull the gun out of my holster, drive it out to an extended shooting position, fire three to five rounds, and that's going to solve whatever problem I'm going to need to solve, right? That's like a, an 80 plus percent likelihood in the defensive shooting world. And we look at what actually happens to people who carry guns and need to defend themselves, whether it's law enforcement or the average person you know, carrying concealed. So if, if it does, then great okay what about the other 15 percent? what if i do have to reload what if i have a malfunction what if i'm only shooting with one hand instead of two what if i have to shoot someone at 20 yards instead of just 15 feet well yep. yes is it still consistent And consistency can't be a make or break because consistency can't be 100%. So efficiency, if you give me two different options and one solves the the problem more efficiently than the other, I'm going to choose the more efficient one. It's, It's pretty objective. Consistency has to have an asterisk because we know nothing is absolute. Nothing is always going to work. So the other side of consistency is, is it consistent with the intended context of use? right so in other words not just the physical skill like how am i how am i holding the gun does it allow me to you know release the magazine efficiently with my strong hand thumb but also does it work in the context of fighting in other words can i achieve that grip without looking at my gun for example can i have my eyes on a threat reach down behind my jacket Get my hand on my gun in my holster can i get this grip while the gun's in the holster right now this may be more of a holster issue than it is a grip issue so if i hit the consistency point and i say no it doesn't work with this holster but I go back to efficiency, this is still absolutely a superior choice for the grip. Then maybe what I need to do is change the circumstances that I can control and use a different holster. And, and so consistency is a, is a pretty, pretty fluid mm-hmm. uh, principle that's incredibly important, but, but sometimes hard to pin down.
0: Yeah. Cause it all depends. Could be situational lighting, grip capability, gear, all of those things have an impact
1: and and it, and it is it is really important to understand that the i don't know i guess the crux of consistency that so many people fall back to is wanting it to be absolute and it really you have to accept the fudge factor of it's not never going to be absolute and because it's quote unquote never absolute yeah. you've got to you've got to go to the next step and that next step really is if we if we understood everything else without needing to define it, integrity would be the end all be all. Right. So what kind of what do we mean by integrity? What kind of integrity are we talking about? Is it do we mean something that's strong, like structural integrity? Do we mean morally appropriate? You know, do we ethical? What What is? Well, integrity? all those things
0: turn and in, come into play, right?
1: They can, uh, you know, personally, for me, I feel like the the structural integrity kind of gets taken care of by the efficiency and effectiveness. Right. And then sure. cons- consistency talks about the, the plausibility and the wider range of efficiency. And I think that's covered. I, so I really am talking about a, a much less objective and a much more subjective interpretation of integrity. So let's go back to the training company in terms of personal defense training. When we sit down and say, you know, should we, we see a new technique? Somebody shows up and say, hey, here's how I reload the gun. We're looking at it and we're like, wow, that is so much more efficient than what we've been doing. And then we go to the next phase. OK, but wait, is it consistent with the other things that we teach? And is it consistent with how we're going to be holding the gun? Is it consistent with the kinds of guns we use? Is it consistent with defensive shooting as opposed to competition shooting? And then we get past that barrier. OK, now integrity. Can I put my head, just to sum it up, can I put my head down on the pillow at night or can I look myself in the mirror, you know, when I get in the morning, when I get ready to go teach a class and sure. believe that what I'm about to teach or what I just taught earlier in the day was the best thing I could be teaching to those students. And not right? a load right. of bull crap, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or not just something that makes them feel good. Right. Not just something that, that I know that worked for me or worked for some other guy in Vietnam 40 years ago or something that um, I know is going to make them better at uh, competition or better at qualification? Is it really the best information I could have given them? And I say, believe instead of no, because I have to be open to the fact that I could be wrong. That's another integrity point, right? I could could be completely wrong because again, Think about it, like somebody shows up and and our programs have evolved over the years quite a bit because somebody shows up and challenges it, asks the question in a different way. Or somebody has a solution that we haven't seen before to something and it's like, hey, try this. Got
0: to evolve. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I have to be willing to always say, okay, it it was the most efficient thing It was like the best 2017 version I could have come up with. But now (laughs) it's 2019 and this is the better way. So I have to be able to look myself in the mirror. I have to be able to put my head down on the pillow. I have to be able to explain it to students. Like the integrity covers the why also. So it's easy enough to be objective with the efficiency. Consistency is more of logic than, than I think, you know, objective fact. It's just, well, logically, this is why we're, we're doing this because we believe these are going to be the circumstances or we, we think this also might need to be important. So we say it's consistent, but then we get to the integrity piece and, and, Part of that goes back from a teaching standpoint goes back to the consistency. Is it consistent for the student? Because it may be the best thing for Navy SEALs, but if I'm teaching local cops, I need to make sure what I'm teaching is the best for them. Right? right. And there could be some nuances to that. If it's somebody with a revolver versus somebody with a semi-automatic pistol, is that important? Well, in some cases, it's really important to what we teach them and how we teach them to do things. So the integrity piece is um I people will say, so then get away from the teaching what is Rob's like personal definition? And I actually asked this in all my instructor development courses, I tell people to write down, like, what is a definition of integrity? And you see this wide range, you know, you get 10 people in the room, you'll get, you know, probably yeah. six or seven, very distinct conceptual or philosophical statements being I'm made sure. go around yeah. the room. And some people focus on, um, so what I think sometimes is like the, the the the, you know apple for the teacher answer which which is like staying true to the principles of the program you're teaching you know like not not that's what he wants to hear yeah from rob's doctrine like i will i will teach with integrity sir you know that and then you hear other people who do like a broader less kiss-assy version of that where they'll say you know um following the guidelines set forth by the endeavor or the ruling body or whatever, they'll come up with it, but these are very external, right? Then other people will go more to the, the ethical moral side. And they'll say, you know, acting within, they'll actually use those words a lot, acting within moral boundaries or, you know, acting in a way that is ethical. And that's always a kind of a a throwaway because then you have to define ethics or morals, or at least define your morals or your community's ethics.
0: Now you're going Um, down a rabbit hole.
1: Yeah. So it's, and and I guess to some extent what I do is is I avoid the whole question in some ways because I, I tell them you know all of, almost always they're all valid right so I'll say okay sure so all of those does anyone does anyone forget about whether you think your answer is better or if you have a follow up question but just on on the face of it as wrote did anybody hear anybody say anything that you absolutely one hundred percent can't figure out how anyone could ever possibly attribute the sentence that was uttered to the word integrity and almost never, and no one, you know, people will say, well, can you say that one again or whatever, but almost never does anybody really have an objection. There's, there's very valid, yeah. this d- diverse ideas about what integrity means. But for me, I sum it up with uh, Polonius, you know, his, his advice to Laertes in, in Hamlet, when he says, you know, sums it all up with to thine own self be true. Sure. And what that means to me is it goes back to putting my head down the pillow or looking at myself in the mirror. I have to believe that what I just did was the right thing to do or the best information to put out or my choice here is the best one I could make. And that might mean somebody's going to disagree with me it might mean somebody's going to say that they don't they don't get it uh, along with not agreeing and i hopefully can fall back to some of the things talked about during consistency or some of the reasons i believe something's more efficient and maybe that's where i'm going to find out i'm wrong but at the end of the day if i don't fundamentally believe i'm making the best choice i believe it is a disenfranchisement of of your own self to say i'm teaching this because the program says and we, we I was born kind of half jokingly with with the instructor candidates if you ever answer a student's question with <laughs> the way we rob do it says, yeah or that's the well not even that's the way we do it if you ever attribute that shit to me or, like, like, right. you're like rob says this like no like well, Rob told me too to be completely irrelevant like that's the worst answer you know like and then the follow-up joke is always like especially if we're in a bar at late at night because rob told me to is not the reason to do anything like just you have to have a real sense of this is what i should do and i believe it and sure do do i put faith in other mentors of mine do i uh listen to to advice from other people do i attribute some of the things i teach to having come from other people absolutely but i believe i know why either at least why i've chosen to follow that mentor's advice or at least why i've chosen to follow that other instructor's guidance in this technique or i absolutely know in many cases why they recommended it so it's one thing to appeal to someone's sense of um uh admiration or one you know appeal to someone else who's an established authority and say well you know so and so says this and and let that stand but if somebody looks at me and says i don't know who that is well i can't hold them accountable for not knowing who my preferred guru is right like maybe you've never heard of shakespeare you have no idea who polonius and laertes are no idea (laughs) right like i still have to be able to explain like to thine own self be true you have got to be able to defend vehemently and potentially relentlessly what it is you did based on your own thoughts, based on your own concepts, your own conclusions, not because somebody else told you or because that's what's in the book. Yep. And that's, that's again going, you know, kind of full circle back to the defensive shooting world. The guy who is teaching the NRA basic pistol program as a concealed carry course because that's what their state mandates be taught. But says to the entire room full of people wanting to hear life and death information, hey, you guys have to know I'm only teaching this course because it's what the county says I have to teach. It's not really a concealed carry course. It's just a basic you know, marksmanship and firearm safety course. I I get what that guy is doing and I understand how it works. And and he has to sort of play that game and he has to hope those people are going to hear that the right way and come back and take a real defensive shooting course. But at the end of the day, if every defensive shooting instructor and more importantly, if the NRA had stood up and said to that county, hey, that's not what that course is for. That shouldn't be getting people the, the permit. You know, the Constitution says they don't need a permit. But if you're going to make them get training, that's not the right course. That would be an integrity play and the system would grind to a halt until it was fixed yeah. but the fact that enough people are willing to jump through that hoop and just teach that you know mis a misapplied course yeah. I, unfortunately gives a lot of people that don't hear that or don't listen to that advice because obviously not every instructor says that, yep. um, they're running around with it, with a piece, of pe- you know a piece of plastic in their wallet that says they're certified to carry a gun. They're carrying a gun in public and they're probably just incredibly naive and overconfident about what they're actually capable of because the training was so inappropriate.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the integrity piece in my mind, you know, I know we work these things backwards for, because from a training perspective, that makes most sense for what you're doing, but it makes most sense for me that integrity is actually uh, the first in line because, especially in the defensive world, uh, shooting uh, using that potentially uh, deadly tool, you can't afford to give people bad information. You got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, "I've I've given them the best that I know how to do right now until the next best thing comes along and we figure out and explore it," because they're potentially, you know, they're going to training and learning these. Uh, lessons getting this tool set, so to speak, so they know how best to handle a really potentially bad situation. so in my mind that that's why that piece is so important
1: it is and and that and to me, that's why it really is the bottom line foundational like last hurdle right we 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 can hem and haul all we want over muzzle up, muzzle down, you know look at your gun, don't look at your gun, all the details of right. the technique, the efficiency, but at the end of the day you have to believe in what you're doing and if if yeah. uh, you know if if the, the most decorated you know warriors of modern society showed up at my house you know tomorrow and said hey we really believe this 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 and this and i say why and their answer is because we're the most decorated modern warriors ever so there yeah. i'm not convinced like okay neat high five i'll buy you a drink Great. get a selfie for the internet but right now like you got to convince me that that muzzle up is a better choice with logic with objective facts because i already have all these reasons over many many years to say no i think pointing the muzzle down is a much better smarter safer way to train so you can't just show up and expect me to, to go the other direction no sure. matter how poor sure. cool impressive or successful you've been you get success breeds complacency you know i mean yeah. you could have been the best guy in the world at you know using a bolt action rifle but you if you are even like mediocre with a semi-auto you're going to be able to you know take out more enemies so so how about you become a better shooter with the new thing instead of telling me i should learn how to shoot a bolt action gun you know and that's kind of what a lot of guys do in this industry they get really complacent based on prior success or at least the illusion of success
0: sure yeah so switching gears for a moment i want to change subjects completely because i've noticed as of late you've kind of uh been involved with and I, i know you're part of uh, walk the talk America. And I think this is so important that these sorts of conversations take place relative to mental health and the firearms community, uh, and the impacts it potentially has there or has had there. We know they've had there, right. And the issues that there are, let's talk about WTTA for a few moments. Yeah.
1: Walk walk the talk America is, um, a really important, um, project. And we're just at a year mark. Uh, I actually had a conversation with Mike Sedini, the founder of Walk Talk America, this morning. We're going to be meeting tomorrow out in Las Vegas. And um, he, you know, that, that that's all, you know, obviously in the past now <laughs> when people are hearing this. But uh, kind of just the, the point being we're in, we're in very frequent conversation and we're doing a lot of work with that organization. And this organization was founded really more than anything else to raise awareness about the intersection of the practical intersection of, of Mental health issues and firearms and especially inside of the gun community, raise awareness of the fact that there there are things you really need to be thinking about in terms of your mental health that affect um your family that affect people around you and that are affected by your access to or control over firearms, and certainly your family or you know anyone in your immediate sphere that has access or potential access to your firearms, their mental health also needs to be of interest or concern to any responsible firearms owner as well. And it's okay to talk about it. In fact, it's important to talk about it.
0: Sure. And I know one of the points you made because I've watched some of your videos that you and Mike have put out. I know one of the concerns uh, in the community is that, you know, if I talk about, uh, you know, I'm not going to call it mental illness, but I'll talk about things that I'm feeling or or, uh, thinking going through is this going to harm my ability to uh, exercise my second amendment rights? Um, You know, I think a a roadblock for a lot of that is the fact that on your paperwork, it asks about your mental state. Right. And so, you know, how do I check that? I've never been really formally evaluated. I feel kind of funky or depressed. Do I check this box? Do I don't, if I do, can I buy this firearm? You know, uh, there's a lot of challenges around that, but I think it's important the conversations start and then that extends to the safety and keeping those firearms locked up and some other, other means of, of making sure that the house that that person is in is in is as safe as possible.
1: Yeah. There, you know, here's the thing, and I'm going to say this and then this is going to get quoted in or out of context. And regardless, <laughs> people are going to hate it. Yeah. There's this question of, well, what if I talk to someone in as a mental health professional, or I ask for help and then I, they take away my guns. Well, the answer is maybe you needed to have your guns taken away. Sure. Okay. So if we're not open to that, maybe, and it could be 0.01% chance. It could be a 10% chance. I don't know. But if we're not open to that, maybe actually being the answer, then we don't have anywhere else to go. So you want to talk about like the integrity issue. Like, this is me being really efficient. Like, right. I'm going to jump past the, let's forget about the hemming and hauling over what the details of the diagnosis are. Yep. Let's just get to the, fit for efficiency's sake, if, in the context we're talking about, the integrity call has to be acknowledging as the pro-gun, as the pro-Second Amendment advocate, as that guy, that yes, there are some people who do to mental issues temporarily or for the rest of their lives, I don't know. But I do know that those people at certain times do exist that should not have access to firearms just as much as they shouldn't have access to firecrackers. They shouldn't be driving a car, you know, whatever. Right. So, but the firearm falls under that. So when you hear things like, well, you know, the veterans are afraid to go ask for help because if they talk about PTSD, they might lose their, their second amendment rights. And these guys fought for our second amendment rights. How can we take their guns away? Well, when I see, you know, 20 22 25 17 of them killing themselves every day the vast majority of them with firearms I start to think, wait a minute, maybe we're the ones being selfish. Maybe we're the ones being scared and selfish that if we allow the window of opportunity for a soldier to get help that might include the reasonable advice that he not have access to firearms for a certain period of time, well then, wait a minute, now our community is vulnerable because we're admitting that there's a potential negative outcome from firearms ownership. Well, if you're not admitting that there's potential negative outcomes from having firearms in your world, you're not responsible enough to have a firearm in your world. Yeah. And that's a hard thing for people to hear, especially from a pro-gun guy and that I'm also a pro-responsibility guy. Right. So go all the way back to what you said about that rights and responsibility shirt. If what's happening now, like with red flag laws and things like that, is if we're not able to demonstrate a maturity and a responsibility on our own inside our community, we are going to have other people's versions of responsibility legislated upon us. And that's been really clear for like 100 years in the U.S. when it comes to guns right yeah. and until we can demonstrate a level of of community interest and responsibility and proactiveness and just maturity in terms of admitting the problems we're going to continue to face mental health initiatives mental health based initiatives as a weaponized component of, of gun control. And only until, you know, we have to get involved in a conversation. That's what Walk Talk America is all about. Really is the baseline is getting involved, having the conversations with quote unquote, both sides, right? But they're not antagonistic sides. They're just different sides. There's a side of that equation that is the mental health professional. And there's a side of that equation that is the gun owner. Yeah. And only the the rhetoric and the divisive politics and just our nature of, you know, polarized black and white conversation in the U.S. right now is what makes those sides antagonistic, right? You can't walk into the average mental health professional's office and expect him to be like vehemently anti-gun. You also can't walk into the average gun owner's uh, house and expect them to, to, you know, swear off any potential help that mental professional, mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists could ever give another human being. They're not really anti- they just don't understand the other side. And and hopefully Walkstalk America is continuing to educate people on both sides of that equation so that they're better able to cooperate, collaborate and not be turned into pawns for either extreme, you know, weaponized against the other where nobody's winning.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for me, it makes a lot of sense because I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of different folks over the years. And, you know, obviously on the subject of gun control, right? What else can be done? What really can be done except to eliminate them all or put these stringent uh, control measures in place? And I've said for a long time, and this is why this is resonating with me, as I've said a long time, you don't do it by extreme gun control. You address the mental health issues because that's really A lot of the times where the issues come into play, right, whether we're talking about active shooter scenarios, uh, issues with PTSD, whatever it is, there's something mentally going on there. And that's where a focus needs to be had. And as best I can tell, and I'm sure there's been some mom and pop organic things done in the past, but this is the first uh, large scale, so far as I know, uh, initiative to, to start talking about that very thing. So I think it's important you know and i've had personal uh issues uh with it as well i've uh i've had to actually take a i know uh you guys were recently talking about having to you know how do you have the conversation when you feel like you need to remove a firearm from a household when things may not be as safe as they should be to have the firearm there, and I was listening to some techniques on uh you know how you might go about doing that, and you say, "Hey buddy let me let me clean your gun for the weekend or whatever and I'm That's thinking good. to myself, "You know what you do? You just go in and take the damn thing and 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 be gone, but I know that has some legal ramifications in some states too, but uh I've had to do that I've had to do it a couple of times, and um it's not fun, but hopefully you know it's made things safer at least relative to using that particular tool and eliminating that from being an option.
1: Yeah, it it, it is. It, it's, it's the impulsiveness. When you talk to people inside of the mental health community, impulsiveness and sort of access to the opportunistic, you know, moment of weakness, uh, having that tool at hand is a big deal. So even inside of the firearms community, like if you're listening to this now and you, you familiar with, um, the protect what you love movement. And that's so it's protect what you love is a actually the first t-shirt in the line of t-shirts that I did with that, that included the rights and responsibilities. One yep. was protect what you love and the yep. protect what you love idea. I've written about it. There's some videos out there. People can Google it, check it out. Maybe if you have notes, you can put some links in there to something I've written about it or something. And it's, um, all about finding that thing that motivates you. Like, why are you going to get up and practice? Why are you going to wear your gun today? Why are you going to train? Why are you going to get the concealed carry permit? Like, what is it that motivates you? And I don't care if it's your job, your, you you feel like you're making Earth better, you're, it's you you want to see your your daughter get married, like you want to finish college, like whatever, I don't care what your thing is. Find the thing that motivates you to want to train and want to be able to protect yourself in that worst case scenario, because it is work, right? Yep. So I just tell people, like, get a post-it note Right, protect what you love, or write hashtag you know P uh, Y W L, you know whatever yeah. your your thing is, and uh, P W Y L. I'm saying it wrong as I was saying it. Was saying it. Um, put that on the safe, like yeah. put that on your 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 box that you keep the gun in the closet. Put that on your quick access safe. Put it put it somewhere. Have a little decorative you know rock with it engraved on it and inscribed on it or whatever, and put it on top of your tactical wall shelf where you hide your AR just so that maybe in that moment when you don't even know what the moment's about, but three years from now, you have like everything is crushing down and falling apart. And and then you, you, you know, I don't know, something else you made a decision you probably wouldn't have made if everything had been fine. And then you got caught doing something you didn't want to get caught doing. And then now it's just, oh, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. And your friends are telling you you fucked up and this and that. And all these things are falling apart. You, you, you don't know how to cope. You reach, you go, you pick up the box. And there's that post-it note that's like, protect what you love. Well, okay, wait a minute. Yeah, my daughter, I still want to do that. Or you know yeah. what, I could get a job back or, you know, I could do this other whatever the thing is, like, maybe that's the thing that causes you a half second of hesitation. Because all of the, the professionals on the mental health side, which I certainly am not, will are suggesting to us and telling us that all the data is very clear. Like, if you can put one more step, one more hurdle, one more you know, moment of contemplation between a person's impulse, yeah, speed bump, between their pr- moment of impulse and the moment of action, you could save lives pretty easily Um, if you if you can just put one or two more steps in there. So, yeah. e- you know, whether it's a ha- keeping your guns unloaded or keeping your guns locked up or putting this, the post-it note on top of the thing that's holding the gun when it's locked up, all of those things can really um, make a difference. So I, I think that's, important is this concept before stage four um, from mental health America who's one of our collaborators and their idea of B before stage four is that like with cancer if you if you get diagnosed at stage four it's it's really hard to you know, fight through that. Right. But if you get screening and things like that, you find out early, you know, stage one, stage two, it's much easier for modern medicine to to deal with the cancer in your body. And if we can do the same thing with mental illness, if we can get in there and get people to be mentally healthier and more resilient way before they have an acute problem. Um. Yeah. Then there's just they're better people. And I've said, you know, what, I, what I've i taken to say is like we got to treat mental health like we do physical health. Right. Yeah. There's no there's a stigma around mental health. Like it's all doomsday, worst case scenario stuff. Like you don't even want to go in that room <laughs> except, right. they, you know, if yeah. you, there's a difference between spraining your arm and and having your arm, you know, chewed off by a, a, you know, wood chipper, you know, (laughs) there are different levels of physical ailment to the body, just like there are different levels of mental ailment to the body. And there's different treatment, and there's different um, potential outcomes, and there's different longevity to the impairment. So there's all kinds of reasons why people should be asking for this help and seeking it out proactively, just like, you know, hopefully you're eating well and, and, you know, drinking only moderately and and maybe not smoking cigarettes anymore and getting a little exercise, doing all those things you do for your physical health.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, my personal philosophy is, Rob, is I believe everyone is a little bit crazy. So it's probably not a bad idea that we start thinking in terms of considering that along with our physical health or whatever else we're doing, right? And not, to your point, not every mental issue means that it's at the extreme and you need to have your firearms taken away from you for a period of time or whatever. It just is to bring more visibility to the subject matter. Because again, I think instead of talking constantly in terms of extreme gun control, that we do start addressing this mental issue um, that this mental topic that is mental um, health issue that's been avoided or just not, you know, just hasn't been talked about at all.
1: Right yeah for sure and and i think that's the issue the bottom line is just talk about it raise awareness get people to discuss these things make sure that they are part of the just like you know do you have kids in the house how do you lock your guns up you know do you have a permit do you do you carry when you're drinking i mean all these questions that every responsible gun owner especially those interested in defensive ownership and potential use of guns uh, they need to be asking themselves this questions. Well, the mental health ones are the same. And like I said, it, a lot of this stuff is hard and scary to talk about. But I'll give you another example inside of the firearms community. A lot of people like to point out that so many of the people who are involved in mass killings or, you know, quote unquote, active shooting yeah. events are on SSRIs or have been on SSRIs somewhere. And it's sort of become like, you know, th- this touchstone of, of, self-evident truth that somehow makes it not the gun's fault right now obviously i don't think mass mass killings are the gun's fault but the idea that you're going to point at a drug that tens of millions of americans are on and say well these three people this year killed 12 people with rifles because they were on those drugs is is sort of nonsensical
0: it's a jump yeah
1: but at the same time what i would say to these people is okay wait a minute you're blaming ssris do you then advocate that anyone?" Forget about anyone on SSRIs because, again, I think that's kind of nonsensical. We do know that the SSRI type drugs, these drugs to treat depression primarily, they will change your behavior, change your your irritability. It even, you know, one of the side effects quite often is potential suicidal thoughts. When you're coming on or going off of them and these some of these drugs can take like a month for your your body and your brain to adjust to being in your system and another month coming off of them. So if you're willing to point the finger at SSRIs, are you also willing to say out loud in America that no one who goes onto or off of an SSRI should carry a gun in the public space during the first month and during that month, first month after they come off it? And, of course, everybody that's in that camp of blame SSRIs, I'll, you know, quote, unquote, everybody, they're all going to look at me like I'm crazy and say, well, no, I would never of do course such not. A thing. Okay. Well, but that's – then what do you saying? Yeah. What, what and, and they, what they're saying is they don't have an idea what they're saying. they don't understand right. the drug, they don't understand what they're saying and the correlation versus um, causation issues. So go learn about it. Go talk to a mental health professional go figure out by the way, ask your friends and, and, and family members how many of them have been on SSRIs at any point in their lives and and now all of a sudden you can't just blame SSRIs. You can't just blame mental health. Are there mental health issues there? Almost certainly in every case, but you can't just point a finger and say leave us, leave us alone blame mental health, especially if you're working against people seeking mental health assistance. And there's a lot of that inside of the gun industry right now. So it's a, it's a real cognitive dissonance kind of thing, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Switching gears here again. And I I know we're, we're, we're growing short on time because I know you're busy. And again, I appreciate you doing this and maybe this puts you on the spot a little bit, but I've been dying to ask you this, you know, it doesn't matter, it, and this is my experience, but I assume others probably have something similar. It doesn't matter where you look, social media, in the news, wherever us pro-gunners are. It seems to me that the lar- largest argument that we continually to make on an ongoing daily basis is our biggest argument towards gun control, and the anti-gunners, so to speak, is the Second Amendment. All you hear about is Second Amendment. It's our rights. It's our rights. It's our rights. In your mind and in your experience, do you think there's another tactic that we could please take? <laughs> uh, whether we're and, and and I guess that's what I'm getting at. Whether or not we're yelling back at the government and the politicians, or we're trying to have a conversation with one another or with the other side. Is there a way that we can move away from two A being the only damn tactic we have?
1: Well, um, yes, I think it's incredibly important, and and I hope that you know you use air quotes when you said only, um, yes. just because it, it it is far too often the um, uh, the default, right? It's it's sort of the the bumper sticker version of discussing gun rights and it's not enough you know no bumper sticker is really enough right yeah. and, and so uh if you go back so again we'll go back to to you know using the google um i wrote an article in 2017 uh summer fall something like that 2017 uh on this issue of shall not be infringed right like if, if all you have is shall not be infringed then you don't have anything right because yeah. you don't you don't you, you cannot Take this incredibly complex situation and reduce it to shall not be infringed, especially not in 2017 or 2019, yeah. as you sit here. Because we're so infringed in any kind of explicit way, any explicit interpretation of that, that you're saying shall not be infringed is now meaningless, right? You you seem like a disconnected guy that just came down off a mountain somewhere after two hundred years and right. you're like, Well, it says here, you know uh well okay great but it also says you can own other human beings and sell them like property you know into these 200 years ago so not really helping not not relevant so what's happened well you know i always say to the to the other side like well maybe it's just time when they say oh maybe maybe the second amendment's out of date okay change it go ahead yeah i'll wait you go change it there's a process it's been done before it could it could be done again and sure. guess what? In some ways, this conversation would be a lot easier for both sides to have if one side wasn't pretending it didn't exist, the Second Amendment, and the other side was pretending all we need to say is, well, it exists yeah. because they're both wrong. But you know, I mean, it, it does exist, and yet it we are infringed. So you get into some of the you know crazy legal, philosophical, political arguments of, well, why did why in that one place does it say? Shall not be infringed, as opposed to you know the First Amendment doesn't say it, the Fourth Amendment doesn't say it, right? It just says you have this right, but now it says the right shall not be infringed. Well, that's it's just an awkwardly written piece of the a great document, it's right? Off, but it's great it's great awfully
0: document. convenient.
1: It 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 it's, it is. It's it's an important. It's an important piece of that writing but again it's also an awkward piece of that writing and that's why there's such contention over it, and that's why books have been written about it and things like that right but the problem is shall not be infringed it it, it isn't an argument it isn't a discussion it's not remotely compelling uh to anyone who's already taken an anti-gun stance there's no there's no way that you're going to change someone's mind like there's no one in 2019 that's saying i think we should have mandatory licensing for guns and you're like hey did you not? You know, there's a Second Amendment that says our right to keep and bear shall, shall not be infringed, and they're going to be like, "Oh, I, I did not know that. Thank I, you. I uh, wasn't aware. Thank you. I, I retract my earlier suggestion. You know, this is not going to have the person who's making the argument about well, guns. You need a license to to drive a car. Why don't you need a license to have a gun? They, they are not. They don't care. About the Second Amendment, and you can go to a civics class, kind of like you should care about the Second Amendment level, except it's not compelling to a modern human being, so it's just not going to work. So we we really need to know that while we're while we as Second Amendment advocates and gun right advocates should not ever give any quarter on the idea that we're willing to suspend the Second Amendment, right? Right, absolutely. We also have to understand it. We will never end or win a conversation mm-hmm. with the Second Amendment. But and, you know what? It it's a bottom line.
0: But it's almost so prolific within the gun community. I think it's just gotten to the point where we're rah-rahing ourselves, right? It's like we're trying to get ourselves fired sure. up because no one else is looking at it and going Second Amendment. Oh, all right. Well, it's cool if you guys have guns. I didn't know that. To your point, right? It's like we're we're talking to ourselves and no one else is listening. So, you know what? What is the conversation we need to be having with the folks that maybe are interested in being swayed one way or the other, or at least open minded enough to have the conversation?
1: Yeah, it, it's there. And, and we have to be open minded enough to have the conversation before we can begin to engage the other people that might be as well. And they are and they are there. And that's why I asked, you know, I hope you used air quotes when you said the only argument we have, because (laughs) there are a lot of us who are making other arguments and having other discussions with people who lean pro gun control. You know, I, I, I always say, like, there's this gun responsibility is the coin. And on one side, you've got gun rights and the other side, you've got gun control. And but if everybody really just agrees on the responsible execution of our gun rights, I don't think those sides would would really be that far off. It's the people that are, you know, in it for the rhetoric or locked into an extreme mode of combativeness. They're not going to talk to each other anyway. And as you said, they're really just, you know, in an echo chamber somewhere to begin with.
0: Yeah. Well, Rob, this has been great. I really appreciate your time and your effort. I think when I, uh, I think when I reached out to you initially to do this with me i said i was honest with you straightforward i said i am pretty sure it's going to benefit us more than you but i think it's still another great opportunity to get some good information out there and i i think we've gotten a little bit out there today for folks uh, hopefully to take away a nugget or two uh if you want to know more about ICA training with rob you can go to icetraining.us Yep. And if you're interested in learning more about Walk the Talk America, you can go to walkthetalkamerica.org, and I think everybody should take an opportunity to go out there and see what that organization is starting to try to do for us. I think it's great. So, yeah, uh, I appreciate you being on here, Rob.
1: I appreciate you having me on. It's a, it's a great opportunity. You know, not only the benefit that hopefully some people are going to get from from hearing this, but I just I enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, you asked some great questions and made some great points that helped me Further evaluate, you know, my own position on on some of these things, and my own thoughts about, you know, even the principles of my own company. Every every time someone challenges or asks questions about it or makes an observation about it, it helps me understand them more and, and maybe uh, articulate them better to other people. So, thank you for that opportunity.
0: Absolutely, and that's it. Thanks for listening.